This is Soft Power Radio on KWNK 97.7 LPFM. Today, we are in conversation with Grace Patorti, longtime anti-nuclear activist and advocate. The nuclear question, testing, storage, waste, is of particular importance here in the West. Our cavalier, carefree, cowboy approach to life has branded us an appropriate sacrifice to the bomb and to other manifestations of nuclear energy, that lingering 20th century taste of unbridled and perhaps unbridleable power. Grace has devoted decades of her life to holding the government, the military, and other public and private interests accountable for their dangerous and deadly tinkering. From the Nevada test site, to the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository, to the Sierra Army Depot, we'll hear more about these places shortly. Grace's activism has spanned practically all of Nevada's nuclear misadventures. What I find so inspiring about the advocacy, both past and ongoing, around these issues is their success. Although many nuclear projects still gleam in the eyes of the powerful, the list of stalled, deferred, and eventually defeated ones is substantial. Let's hear from Grace about the story of the anti-nuclear fight here in Nevada. My full name is Grace Katori, formerly Bukowski. A lot of folks may know me as Bukowski, my ex-name. I worked for a number of organizations in my career. Um, First of all, there was Citizen Alert, which mission was to defeat the nuclear waste dump at Yucca Mountain. So I worked there, and that was part-time, and I also worked for Western Solidarity at the same time, which was a coalition of folks in the West uh, working to halt abusive military activity in the West. There was a whole lot at that time that was going on. So then, and then I moved on and I also worked for the Rural Alliance for Military Accountability and that was called RAMA. So, and then from there, I went to the Nevada Conservation League for five years. So my whole career was basically um, as an activist fighting against environmental contamination and military abuses in the West. And how did you get started doing that kind of work? Um, I actually found a local uh, nuclear freeze organization. I, I had just had a baby and I decided I'd go to the library. And I found the local freeze group, which was pretty much winding down at the time, but nonetheless, it got me started um, in doing activities and events focused on, in particular, nuclear testing, nuclear weapons, transportation, and those types of issues. Oh, and the Nevada test site as well. That was a big issue. Were you involved with some of the activism around the test site? Oh, yes. <laughs> Let's just say that 
handcuffed and arrested a few times at the Nevada test site. Um, those were the days where there were tens of thousands of people at the test site protesting underground nuclear testing. And as you know, Nevada also hosted above-ground nuclear testing or in earlier periods. And we were fighting for a comprehensive test ban treaty, uh, which, by the way, Congress has never ratified. But nonetheless, there are no more above-ground or underground nuclear tests going on at the Nevada test site at this time. And we certainly want to keep it that way. Those struggles were were led by the indigenous people in this state. So that was a big part of the struggle. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Maybe give me, um, you know, a brief overview kind of of what was happening at the test site in the 80s and how some of those struggles got off the ground. Okay, well... Uh, there were a number of spiritual leaders, in particular amongst the Western Shoshone people, Corbin Harney, uh, Bill Rossi, other folks who led the charge at the Nevada test site. And what they were doing at the time, which was brilliant, just brilliant, was they were giving permits under the Ruby Valley Treaty for the protesters to go on to Western Shoshone land, which includes the Nevada test site and a good part of Nevada. So uh, it was real interesting when you went to the test site. They were arresting all kinds of people, Martin Sheen and Chris Christofferson and all these folks were getting arrested, but they would not arrest the Western Shoshone leaders because they did not want to give the Western Shoshone the opportunity to take their claims to federal court. So it was really interesting how they went about avoiding the Western Shoshone claims at that time. And what were some of the, I mean, were at that point, were some of the issues with testing such as, um, you know, health effects, environmental effects, were those already beginning to be well-documented? Oh, yes. Uh, the downwinders in Utah definitely were part of the picture. Also, the downwinders um, here in Nevada, the people who were getting the cancers and are still getting the cancers from above-ground and underground nuclear testing. So, yes, the downwinders were part of that, that picture, as well as the veterans. Um, let's not forget the vets who went to places like the Marshall Islands and, and witnessed these above-ground tests. They also uh, were contaminated, and, and many of them have gotten sick. So that was a huge issue. And can you um, explain the term downwinder? Downwinder, what happened with, with the nuclear test? is because LA is pretty close, Las Vegas is close, some of these major metropolitan areas are close. They waited for the wind to blow towards the east in most cases, which means that the people in southern Nevada and southern Utah, and sometimes with the jet stream, these clouds of nuclear 
the clouds moved with them. Uh, so, yes, those are the people, people in St. George, Utah, and Kanab, and those southern Utah uh, areas were especially hard hit. It was awful. And was it kind of in the 80s that some of these effects um, started to be felt by people, right? Because from my understanding, you know, it, it it's not, you know, immediate, obviously, right, that, that, that you get symptoms. Right. It's the latent cancers. And yes, in the 80s, there were a number of people that, that perished uh, because of testing. One man in particular comes to mind, Joe Sanchez, who was the Western Shoshone environmental activist from Duckwater. Uh, the indigenous people often were downwind as well. They, I mean, what it, what, what it was at that time, it was they claimed national security, and it was the rural, low-population people that were simply considered expendable by our own government. And they still do that to this day. If you're in a low population density or people of color, you're considered expendable.
That was We Got the Neutron Bomb by The Weirdos. You are listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Grace Patorti about the anti-nuclear movement, which saw the formation of broad-based coalitions across party and many other lines. Coalitions whose diversity and tactics we could certainly learn much from today. Yeah, and last time we spoke, right, you mentioned that um, one of the things that really stood out about the anti-nuclear movement was the kind of broadness of the coalitions um, that were built. Yeah, it was it was different times. Uh, the saying back then was, leave your shotguns at the door because we have work to do. And so there was a broad coalition that included the rural folks. And that meant going and sitting down and having coffee with these folks who were gold. These people were wonderful. Um, But it meant that people like the Sierra Club, the Mining Association, the Cattlemen's Association, Western Shoshone leaders and tribes, we all worked together, and we disagreed on a whole heck of a lot of issues. But when it came to military abuses in the state, people got together and we worked together, and it was a great coalition and amazing people. There are amazing people out in rural Nevada that, uh, yeah, they're great. So by... um. You know, by around the time in the 80s when, when you got involved, um, what was actually going on uh, at the test site, right? Was it primarily underground tests at that point, and what did that look like? It was primarily underground tests. And so there was an international call for the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. So uh, that's what it was. And, I mean, there were people who were going into the test site, you know, backpacking in and, and yeah, trying to stop the blast. Um, so, I mean, I, I went down there one time, I think there was, you know, 10, 10,000, 15,000 people at the Nevada test site camping out and crossing the line. It was sort of fun at the time because uh, where they were, crossing the line, we were crossing the line, it's in Nye County, which is a very low density county with not a lot of money in Nevada, and basically the protesters, dealing with the protesters, bankrupted the county. And so it got got rather testy for a while. Uh, At one point, the people who were being arrested were taken to uh, motel and hotel rooms and there'd be like 25 women in a room under arrest. You mean those rooms were kind of being used as sort of ad hoc jail cells? Exactly. Exactly. And they hated Martin Sheen so much they dared him to come back into the county. They said if he came back into the county he would be arrested immediately. So it was it was fun times back then. And I'm assuming that you yourself then were arrested at least once, right? 
curiosity then were you being arrested for trespassing yes for trespassing and yet that didn't stop people no no it did not stop people and did you feel at the time that your actions and the demonstrations were having an impact most assuredly and there, there, that impact is still felt today don't have nuclear testing ongoing at the Nevada test site. So we were successful. For sure. We, we, we stopped it. So it's a good lesson in, in activism and, and what a broad spectrum of people can do. Um, yeah, we won. How could you tell at the time that your tactics were working? because politically it was really difficult for our leaders to come out and say I support nuclear testing and that's the same for Yucca Mountain even today we do not have political leaders governors, senators, congressmen who come out and say I think Yucca Mountain should be built you won't find that in Nevada and that is the true sign of our success back in the 80s, is that we made it politically unpopular for our leaders to back these type of abuse and activities. And so then let, let's, um, you know, so we mentioned the test site, right, which was around since the early 50s, right, and they did above ground tests and then they switched to underground tests. From my understanding, early on, right, they were testing all kinds of things, like how soldiers would function, you know, if they were near ground zero, what effect the radiation would have on, like, cattle and buildings. Um, by the time they were doing it underground, what was your understanding as far as what were they really testing? Oh, they, they were testing the big boys, the the same as they were doing above ground. It just became so unpopular for them to do it above ground because everyone knew about the radiation clouds. The, the problem was they moved it underground, but it didn't stop the radiation and it didn't stop the contamination. And lots of times they had major leaks when they did it underground. Plus now we have permanent contamination. Of course, we have that for both above ground and underground. But, yeah, it's permanently contaminated forever. Black, like a nuclear bomb, we share the same. Blood, you're not alone, love. Black, like a nuclear bomb, we share the same. But you're not alone Love Her smile Shines through the desolate Crowd her heartbeat Fell through the cloud Like a pain in 
That was Nuclear Bomb by Cherry Glazer. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are in conversation with Grace Patorti about anti-nuclear activism in Nevada in the 1980s and 90s, the people involved in this fight, and the way that they fought it. And so was um, the activism around the test site, was that sort of the first, let's say, kind of political battle you found yourself in? No. Uh, the, the first political battle we, we found ourselves in was fighting the MX missile, which uh, was a series of rail lines that they were going to put the MX missile on and ride around the, the west and fire these missiles from rail cars. So that was the first battle that really got the people in Nevada stirred up that Yucca Mountain uh, just really got people riled up. And we never did get the MX missile as well. Again, it was that coalition of ranchers, indigenous people, and, and rural folks, uh, as well as major environmental groups who fought the MX missile. We fought it in the courts, and we won. And so tell me about that um MX missile testing. So was that what, what was the plan basically kind of to do these sort of mobile tests or how was that supposed to work? Well, they were going to deploy it mobily. It wasn't testing. This was the deployment system that they were going to build and ride these missiles around uh, and then fire them when needed. So quite a horrific weapon. And the argument was, well, if they're mobile, the enemy's never going to know quite where they are. But if they're mobile, doesn't that put the missiles at risk of terrorism or other activities or accidents? So it was a huge deal. What was your involvement with activism around that? Oh, <laughs> let's just say there were trips to Wyoming and Utah, uh, Western Solidarity filed a lawsuit. We actually won the lawsuit. Um, there were a whole lot of folks who were involved with that. But I would say the real victors in that one were the ranchers, because the ranchers really got involved and stuck to it and fought the, the MX missile. And how were they organizing? It was grassroots. It was sitting at, at people's kitchen tables. I mean, this is pre-internet. So we were on the phone. We were doing alerts, uh, mailing notices, just checking the Federal Register. Um, it was very much, and back then we had fax machines. So, I mean, major quick communication was done by fax. <laughs> so quite a different time. We didn't have access to the information that we have today. So it was word of mouth and going out to the communities. There's, there are a few people, Marv Tamer from uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, Steve Erickson from Utah, uh, Jay Truman. There were a lot of folks involved. And tell me if you can, you know, I'm curious about that encounter, you know, sort of, um, 
yeah, between, I guess, people of different backgrounds, different political affiliations. Mm -hmm. The initial encounter was always about honesty. You had to go in, and I would say it straight up front, right at the beginning, here's who I am, here's where I want to go, this is what we can agree on, this is what we're never going to agree on, and we just have to move forward on what we can agree on. Now, I don't know in today's political situation whether that's possible because those were different times. Not that that there weren't differences because there most certainly were. But at that time, you could sit down with your neighbors and rural folks and have that discussion. And as long as that discussion was up front, Right from the very get-go, things seem to work out. I mean, I can tell you myself personally, the communities in Nevada where I was treated just wonderfully were Austin, Nevada, very, very conservative. Goldfield, Nevada, very conservative. Ely, very, very conservative communities. Yet, we were welcome in those Yeah, it's definitely kind of a lesson to to learn and 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 uh, something something to look to to kind of understand how those coalitions are possible. Like you're saying, it's hard to see maybe something similar happening now, but you know it seems hopeful if it happened once, right, that it could happen again. It can ha- it can happen again, but there has to be that honest communication and. I, I guess, in some ways, a bluntness that, you know, this is, this is it. This is what we're dealing with. And as long as we're divided as we are now, although I think things are turning, people are, are turning and recognizing the alliances that can, that can build strength, um, it's, it's hard to win because a victory in taking on an, uh, Something as big as nuclear testing, or Yucca Mountain, or Sierra Depot, or the Continental Operation Range, those struggles are struggles that are going to take 5, 10, 15, even 20 years. So you have to build that, that base that people can work with and trust to move forward.
was Our Friends Electric by Gary Newman. You are listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Grace Patorti about the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository, an enormous proposed nuclear waste dump 
that, despite being successfully protested and opposed for decades, remains technically on the table, is the only place in the country legally designated for this kind of harmful use. Let's talk a little bit about Yucca Mountain. So give me, you know, give me a background on sort of the, I'm particularly curious about um, the early stages, right, of that project, because once again, kind of how I understand it is nobody wanted to have a nuclear waste repository and Nevada just kind of got stuck with it, right? Right. Nevada got the screw job, as we used to call it. <laughs> we used to have this big giant screw. Um, but what happened with Yucca Mountain, again, it was a coalition because you had the people in Washington State, you had the people in Texas, you had all these folks from around the country uh, who didn't want a nuclear waste dump in their state who came together and we had a coalition and often we met right here in Washoe Valley out at uh, Maya, Maya Miller's ranch and there was a coalition and it was decided that not in my backyard was not going to be the response from uh, the community of people fighting the nuclear waste dump. So amongst those groups, and there were a lot of groups at the time, that, that was the stand. Of course, that didn't stop the federal government from trying to dump it here in Nevada. Um, and we still need to be vigilant about Yucca Mountain. But so far, they haven't gotten their dump. So, um, yeah, those were amazing times. That was quite the struggle, too, to get those groups to sign on to that, because many of them just thought, if I can get it out of my state, I don't care. And do you remember kind of in those early days um, when sort of uh, kind of at the upper levels, it was being determined that this, the Yucca Mountain, you know, that that was going to be designated as the national kind of nuclear waste dump. Do you remember sort of as that was coming down the pipe, what people's reactions were? Well, people's reaction was no way, not going to happen. I mean, there was a time when you rode down the highway here. I would say one in five cars would have it. Nevada's not a wasteland bumper sticker on their vehicle. I mean, Citizen Alert was there, their membership was growing, people were giving money. There was a whole public campaign against Yucca Mountain. But again, I think the key to it was the political leadership could not say they supported the dump because the outrage against them would be loud, local, and immediate. I mean, just bam. You weren't going to get elected if you came out and said you were going to support a nuclear dump in Nevada. And, of course, lots of the other politicians out of the state said, oh, well, you already have nuclear testing, so what? It's already contaminated there. Well, the issue was much bigger than that, and that includes the transportation of nuclear waste throughout the state um, and the hazards associated with it. People just were tired of getting, after all the downwinder stuff and the testing stuff, and then we had the takeover of the groom range, people had had enough. 
and they weren't going to take it. As far as the test site, right, you know, you mentioned direct action, such as, like, camping out at the site. What were some of the ways that people um, expressed their opposition to the Yucca Mountain Dump? Well, <laughs> let's just say that the hearings on the Yucca Mountain Dump got rather rumbunctious. Uh, we, we were known to be a little rowdy at the hearings. Um, politically, we had an, uh, the Nuclear Waste uh, Task Force in Nevada. We had uh, the governor's office had an off had an office dealing with it. Filed numerous lawsuits to stop it, and they played a, a key role in helping move that process along. And then they brought in a man from Texas by the name of Steve Frischman, who is just this amazing brain and uh, I know that we had a party when he came to town because he stopped them from putting the dump in Texas and we saw him as as uh, a future success for Nevada which he was so yeah it was political we had Harry Reid uh, who was fighting it we then had Governor Bryan uh yeah, it was it was a political decision as well as a grassroots uprising. However, you didn't mention right that you know some of these battles become pretty protracted, right? And the Yucca Mountain question is still somehow right; it's still somehow open. Um, talk about that about sort of how you know that particular project uh, seems to be kind of, I don't know, uh, unwilling to really die, and what that sort of felt like on the activist end when it, especially when it started to drag out, you know, years, decades. I I mean, once, it seems like once someone gets an idea like that in the federal government, you need perpetual oversight of what's going to happen. Because, for instance, um, the Idaho bombing range that were, was proposed in southern Idaho in the 80s, um, that was a huge battle. Uh, they wanted basically 4 million acres of southern Idaho and into Nevada for a bombing range, and they didn't get it. But little by little, you see these little proposals, like right now, there's a proposal to allow jets to fly at 100 feet above ground level over the Hawaii Canyonlands. Just, they just seem to creep in little by little. So you just have to be vigilant and keep on top of them. And that's what we're having to do with Yucca Mountain. Because there's still people who think, oh, it would be great. It would create jobs and people could make money. And that's the bottom line in a lot of these proposals, is someone thinks they can make money.
was Countdown by No Use for a Name. You are listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. Today, we are in conversation with Grace Petorti about the Sierra Army Depot, a facility that burned and detonated old weapons directly upwind from Pyramid Lake. Grace was involved in the long and eventually successful fight to shut down the depot's careless and deadly disposal practices. Well, let's talk a little bit then about, um, I think, if I'm remembering the name correctly, the Sierra Army Depot. Oh, the Sierra Army Depot, that was a huge struggle in the 
80s, late 80s and 90s and into the 2000 new century. Um, what was going on at the Sierra Army Depot was the largest open burn, open detonation of old munitions in the nation. They were taking old weapons, laying them in a pit on the side of a mountain, lighting them on fire, and poof, magically gone and disposed of. The problem is, all you did was take the munitions, burn them, aerosolize them, and then they actually waited for the wind to blow. Now this is located, oh, about an hour and a half north of Reno in California, but they would wait for the wind to blow under their standard operating procedures to blow towards Nevada. Well, across the mountain from Sierra Army Depot is Pyramid Lake. So you would see these clouds at the north end of Pyramid Lake, these clouds of toxic waste going over the lake and over the tribe. And so it was a huge deal. Army Depot was the number one polluter in the state of California. And basically the last place in the nation where the military was able to take these munitions and dispose of them in, in this way. So it was an interesting time. Bill Clinton was president. He had just signed the executive order on environmental justice saying that if the federal government was doing a major federal action that impacted Native American tribes, that they had to do government-to-government -government negotiations with the tribes. So Pyramid Lake, in particular the chairman at that time, Norm Harry, who died about oh, a year and a half ago, um, got involved and said, hey, we want to be part of this process. And again, it took a decade. It took more than a decade to fight this battle. Um, we filed a lawsuit. We had an attorney. Uh, we won the lawsuit. Uh, what it was is they had to apply for a permit under the Clean Air Act to dispose these weapons and determine what was going what was going into the atmosphere. And we're talking cancer causing agents and rocket solid rocket fuel, nasty, nasty mercury, selenium, all these nasty things were going into the atmosphere. And the other thing that had happened was all of a sudden well, it wasn't all of a sudden, but there were a lot of people up in that area who were getting cancer. Not a surprise. So when they first started going for the permit, the Chamber of Commerce, all these people in Susanville were supporting the Army in getting their permit. Then people started getting cancer and they started to recognize that the cancer may be coming from all this heavy metal that was going into the air. And 
the tide turned. So the people who were supporting the base all of a sudden were saying, hey, my family member has cancer. We want some answers. What's going on here? So it was a very interesting time. It was a landmark case. We never expected to win in the way we did, and we basically forced them to stop. And how long did it take? For me personally, it took 15 years. For most people, I would say they were involved for about 10. It was a long battle. The permit process was a long battle. I mean, I first wrote comments on it, and then it took them years to respond to the comments. Um, and then the tribe got involved and the local residents got involved. So it was a long, long struggle. And it, it, again, Harry Reid was in the middle of it, Senator Reid. We had the Washoe County Health Board raising uh, questions about the contamination. You had the tribe raising questions. They had to respond to the tribe. It was an amazing coalition. And it really was a couple dozen people at that time, in the right place, asking the right questions. And again, it's people who, I mean, you had Larry Moss, who had a beard down to his waist, who lived up in the mountains. You had Jack Pastor, who was head of the business community in Susanville. You had Norm Harry, tribal leadership. And then you had Sierra Club, and you had Rama, and you had Citizen Alert, you had all these other people that were getting involved. Um, so yeah, it was a big deal. Huge victory. Huge. And, and given the protracted nature of the battle, how did you stay motivated? I never give up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I start a battle like that. You just have to hang in there. And and what I've discovered over the years, too, is you, it's your darkest moments, the moment where you, you want to give up and you want to just say, I've done enough, I don't want to do anymore. That's when the tide is turning. And that's when things are changing. And I, I, that's just my personal observation of how things work. When you think things are the worst, things are moving in the background. And you just move forward. And and sometimes you have to take a break. I was blessed in that I had people I worked for who recognized uh, burnout and would say to me, Grace, go take a month off. <laughs> and I would. And that rejuvenated me. Don't give up, but recognize when you need time out. Because you have to keep yourself healthy and motivated and, and to have fun. And that's the other thing. You really have to have fun. And the biggest gift from all of this work is the amazing people you meet and the amazing
of friends that you'll make. I mean, I know that the first nuclear freeze meeting that I went to in Reno, every individual in that meeting I'm still friends with. And that was almost 40 years ago. So it's, it's an amazing gift to be doing this work and meeting the people that are like-minded and moving forward in your lives as friends and co-workers. Yeah, and that definitely struck me because, you know, when when I had asked Bob Fulkerson sort of about talking about this stuff, you know, right right off the bat, he basically just gave me a list of names of other people to talk to. And, yeah, they were clearly people, you know, that he met through doing this kind of work 30-plus um, years ago that he was still in contact with. Oh, yes, all of them. I mean, Bob, I... I... Gosh, I met Bob at, I guess it was, it was a nuclear, was Hiroshima day. Uh, and that was it, forever. We were off. <laughs> and away we went. Bob was great to work with because he used to just look at me and say, go get him, Grace. <laughs> and away I'd go. Um, it was great.
That was Atomic by Blondie. You're listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Grace Patorti about the variety of tactics employed by the anti-nuclear movement. The movement's willingness to combine direct action with lawsuits, academic research, protests, and grassroots coalition building is what gave it strength and efficacy over so many years. So the thing that kind of ties um, some of these uh, issues together, right, the test site and Yucca Mountain and the Sierra Army Depot, right, is there seems to be this, um, you know, when it comes to, like, weapons and nuclear waste and these sort of harmful technologies, um, there seems to be this desire, on one hand, that, you know, you acknowledge that these things are harmful to people, and then you have a desire to kind of test them in these places where, oh, we need to find somewhere where there isn't anybody, right? So we can kind of test them safely, but kind of looks like there places like that don't really exist, right? Wherever you're going to go, wherever you're going to do it, someone's going to be impacted by it. Most and, cases, it was the rural West, Utah, Nevada, Idaho, New Mexico, Arizona. I mean where there just simply is a lower population density. But uh, I I, I don't understand how a rural person is less valuable than a city person. And that's a real moral question that I think this nation has to face because everyone should be equal. And it's just not the case. Do you think that there was kind of a presumption in those days, right, that the rural populations wouldn't care as much? Or maybe there was a thought that if they did, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it? I think there was that presumption. But but let's not forget that the presumption was because there were fewer people there were fewer folks to vote and so it didn't matter if they weren't happy because they weren't the people who were electing folks to congress and the senate yeah so it was political power as well and in that sense the kind of coalitions that were built that's kind of where their power lay, right? Because you were kind of some of these populations that, yeah, maybe there weren't that many of them, but they were kind of able to leverage their voices kind of through these other right. people that came together with them. I mean, we knew how to go to Carson City and to lobby and and to make our voices known through uh, committees. For instance, there was a public lands uh, committee, a state public lands committee. Uh, chairman was Senator Dean Rhodes from Tuscarora at the time. And I can tell you, I didn't agree with 90% of what Senator Rhodes stand for, stood for. But when it came to military land expansion and airspace grabs and the impacts that it was going to have on rural folks, his committee was key to the political process and getting to the governor and the governor's office. And at that time, we had a state clearing 
many proposals coming towards Nevada that the governor's office created an office strictly to deal with all of the environmental assessments, the environmental impact statements, all of the various things that were going on in the state. And that, that made a difference because that office disseminated the information to the various agencies and organizations within the state that would take interest in a particular proposal. So that was different back then. So to return kind of for this, uh, these last few questions here to you personally, um, talk a little bit about sort of your maybe personal growth or, or, or development as an activist as far as obviously, you know, when you were younger, being involved in kind of a lot more direct action and how, you know, how your approach to those things maybe has changed over the years. And now in retrospect, kind of looking back at that, um, yeah, which kind of tactics do you feel like were the most effective? And from your personal experience, maybe a more fun question, you know, which kind of tactics did you enjoy the most? Well, I have to admit (laughs) that one of the tactics I was most successful at was I'm a technical person. Um, I like to read environmental impact statements and tear them apart and and to come come at the problem with the information in hand, the written information. So one of the main tactics that I used throughout my career was the Freedom of Information Act. You had to have the document to prove your point because I'm, I'm just a woman in Nevada. I don't have a college degree. I don't have, you know, this big education, but I can read the tech, technical documents and understand them. And so I used that capability that I have to fight my battles. For instance, the Army Depot. The thing that slowed Sierra Army Depot down for years, and I had several people tell me this, was when they did ask for questions, scooping questions, I sent them 30 pages of questions. They They had to respond to those questions. And it slowed them down. And so I did that throughout my career and the Freedom of Information Act. And it's it's an amazing tool. You just have to be patient. You have to wait for the documents. I mean, I just recently found out, this is an amazing story. I just recently found out that General Schwarzkopf in the first Persian Gulf War carried in his satchel for months a copy of my report on depleted uranium. It took me years of research to do that report. And I had scientists review it and do it. And I know this to be true because, believe it or not, the man I am currently married to was General Schwarzkopf's senior enlisted aide during the first first Persian Gulf War. 
I recently pulled out a copy of my report and he said, where did you get that? I said, that's my report on depleted uranium. He said, no way, no way. Schwarzkopf had your report and he read it. So you, you don't know where you're gonna make the impact, but I know that the document that was in the back of that report, a United States Army document, saying what the health risks were to the troops was read by the general because of the work we did.
was Missiles by the Sound. You are listening to KWNK 97.7 LPFM in Reno, Nevada. We are in conversation with Grace Petority about the anti-nuclear movement here in Nevada. Do you feel like, I think sometimes people get, um, I don't know what the right word would be, but maybe disillusioned, right? That you kind of, even if you uncover the truth, so to speak, right, and, and kind of make it known that uh, that sometimes isn't enough, right? That um, as far as a struggle, um, you know, against the powers that be, you know, whether it's the federal government or whoever it may be, right, sometimes there are certain ways that, you know, you might have to force their hand. Um, and it seems like you've covered right over your career, right, the gamut of those of those tactics, like you said now. So this is kind of research, incontrovertible, scientific mm, evidence, right, getting arrested, right. Uh, lawsuits, uh, like you were saying for this year, Army Depot, right? So kind of a range of tactics, right? Some of them kind of more traditional, maybe other ones less traditional, right? How do you you know, kind of how do you uh, evaluate sort of over the years um, how your understanding and approach to that has worked as far as knowing which tactic is appropriate for which situation? That's a, <laughs> that's a really hard question. A lot of it is, is working from the gut and just deciding what's going on. And a lot of it is talking to the people and listening to the people. The whole thing about doing this kind of work is, and I, I, you can never go into a community and tell people what to do. That's not our job as a grassroots organizer. You go into the community, you listen to the people, and you let them decide what the next steps are going to be. You can guide, you can suggest, you can bring up ideas, but you have to listen to the people. I mean, it seems like, right, you've devoted a really big chunk of your life to this work. Um, maybe tell me about, first we can start with maybe the accomplishment that you're most proud of? Oh, the accomplishment? Well, <laughs> that's a good one. The depleted uranium report was a huge accomplishment. Uh, actually, there's a really small issue, smaller issue, that I'm very, very proud of, and that was a proposal to fly jets over the Walker River, Paiute people. They wanted to fly 120 jets a night at treetop level directly over Shurs, Nevada. And I just thought, no way. And that was a big victory because we killed that one pretty fast. But it, it basically, the tribe said, what does this mean? I said, you're going to have jets 
screaming over the reservation all night long. And it's going to impact the kids, and it's going to impact the seniors, and it's going to impact everyone. And you need to make tell them no. And that was a big victory. Why were, what was going to be the purpose of those flights? They were going to fly from Naval Air Station Fallon over Shures and use the bunkers at the Hawthorne Army Weapons Depot as a mock city for training. Yes. It seems a little insane because I, I always have this vision of a jet crashing into the bunkers at Hawthorne. It just did not make logical sense. But that was the proposal. I mean, and at the time there was also a proposal to put a a big old tank training range in the Gaps Valley, and there was uh, the takeover of Dixie Valley and, and the loss of that community because of the Navy's supersonic operation area. I mean, there were so many things going on at the time. The list goes on and on. And then what about a frustration that's kind of still with you, kind of a battle that maybe you wish you could have won. The frustration that is still with me is uh, the continual attempts by by the military to take more and more of Nevada land. I mean, right now we have a proposal at uh, Nellis Air Force Base. They want to take over more of the Desert National Wildlife Range. We have a massive proposal to take more land at Naval Air Station Fallon. So it's just continual, there's continual barrage of let's take more of Nevada. And they already have over 4 million acres in this state. It's not like they don't have, we've got, we've got the Nevada test site, we have Nellis Air Force Base, we have Fallon Naval Air Station. We have the largest weapons depot in the Western Hemisphere at the Hawthorne Army Weapons Depot. So, I mean, and they control about 70% of the airspace over the state. Now, there doesn't seem to be as many complaints about low-level jets and sonic booms as there used to be because of drones. Drones have taken over, basically, the need uh, for a lot of the tactics that they were using back then. But but nonetheless, there's continual encroachment onto the rural people and our public lands in Nevada by the Pentagon. Let me hear some, you know, words of advice or encouragement to somebody, you know, who wants to get involved in the type of political struggles that you've been involved in over the years. What would you say to someone who... Um, you know, to kind of motivate and uh, advise someone in that position? Well, just find an organization that you think you can work with and you can enjoy, get involved. And um, my favorite saying was, kick butt, take names. Go for it. Get out there. Um, Just get involved and and stick with it. I mean, I'm a new member of the American Indian Movement. I love working with the indigenous people. You just get out there and help in any way you can. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do this. You can help by just 
showing up or writing a check or just being a warm body or, you know, telling your neighbors, educate your neighbors. It's, it's real simple to get involved and it's great fun. It's just fun. Today, we were in conversation with Grace Petorti about weapons and waste, nuclear and otherwise, and their odd and special place here in Nevada. The rhetoric used to justify testing powerful weapons often suffers from a simple paradox. On the one hand, we are told these weapons are a vital part of our strength as a nation. They are so powerful that if needed, they could be deployed to annihilate our enemies in one fell blow. On the other hand, we are told that these very same unimaginably deadly devices are somehow perfectly safe to blow up, even if there happen to be some people nearby. The hidden message that the paradox hides, of course, is that the weapons are in fact quite dangerous, but that there are some people who can be sacrificed for this particular patriotic good, whether they explicitly consent to it or not. The fact is there are no safe places to blow things up. Deadly power is deadly no matter where we choose to ignite it. It takes real dedication, the dedication of activists like Grace, to stand up to those who without flinching would put human life or the life of those deemed expendable on the altars of war and power. We have the anti-nuclear movement to thank for clear skies undisturbed by the flash of nuclear weapons spewing radioactive debris. And we have much to learn from its tactics, victories, and participants. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Soft Power Radio. Three, two, one, zero, fire!